This is Casey O'Neill, and you're listening to the Transforming Industries Podcast, brought to you by Roman Manufacturing. Join me on this exciting journey as we explore the ever-evolving terrain of industrial manufacturing and discover the pivotal role played by Roman in powering the future. In today's episode, we will explore the evolution of transformer technology and the latest innovations impacting the manufacturing world. With me today is Kurt Hoffman, a key figure in product development and innovation at Roman. Kurt is Roman's president and chief technology officer, as well as a second-generation owner. Kurt, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Before we dive into our topic, why don't you uh, give me a little history of Roman? Um, So Roman Manufacturing was founded in 1980 uh, with my father, Bob Hoffman, and Dietrich Roth. Um, it's where the name comes from. It's Roth and Hoffman. It's why it's capitalized as it is in the, in the logo. Um, and uh, my dad and Dietrich came from Kirkhoff Manufacturing, which was located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And maybe just stepping back even prior to the Roman manufacturing days, uh, upon uh, my dad and Dietrich's retirement, uh, they had a book authored called The Perfect Partnership. So if somebody really wants to understand the history, I would strongly suggest trying to get their hands on that book. Um, But if you sort of look through there in in maybe a really brief summary of it, um, interestingly enough, uh, post-World War II, uh, General Motors plant, which is located in, in Grand Rapids, um, became sort of the hub for General Motors uh, welding uh, uh, processes. And out of that spun several companies that started making water-cooled welding transformers that were used in the, in the automated process of welding vehicles. And um, one of those companies was Kirkhoff, which is where my dad and Dietrich met. Um, then several other ones uh, formed. And through the 1980s, there was consolidation where Roman bought up Kirkhoff, Goodrich, Transpower, several of the other companies and consolidated it back into one. So the, for the first real, I would say, 20 years of our history, we were primarily a manufacturer of water-cooled transformers that were used in the resistance welding process. Someplace in the late 80s, early 90s, we also stepped a little bit into using those same transformers for other industrial processes, such as melting glass. Um, Sort of the same current profile, the difference was instead of instantaneous small pulses of the heat that are used in welding, the glass transformers were used continuous to melt glass. And um, that sort of set us up into going further into the glass industry in, you know, the late 2000s and um, also into the heat treating business. And it continuously evolved that these compact water-cooled transformers could be used in many industrial processes. And as they evolved, they started adding controls, bus bars, and we started to become a systems house based around low voltage, high current. And um, I think that's sort of where we enter today, which has now broadened us into many industries, which include, you know, the semiconductor industry as well as the data center business. Um, and, and obviously, we're still a prominent player in the resistance welding business as well as glass and, and heat treating applications. So because of the theme of this podcast of kind of the evolution of, of specifically today, transformers, when you guys were primarily making resistance welding transformers and you reapplied them to a glass uh, application. Um, was it, was it easy to just kind of 
take the same transformer and put it on a glass furnace or were, were there were there innovations that you had to do to make sure that the, the the transformer that you were putting into the glass furnace would last because it's the difference like you said is you're going from pulses to continuous i imagine there are there are some different requirements. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, from a, from a pure electrical engineering standpoint, duty cycle is sort of a math thing. The reality of it is, is I think as you, you know, as we built and evolved into that industry, you know, safety factors came into play, right? Where you didn't just do the linear math as much as, hey, if this thing's going to run continuous forever, we better build it a little bit more robust. Um, then the other things that probably were a little bit different were just environmental things. We've, the, the welding industry had already established that you needed a transformer that was fully potted. And by, by saying that, what I really mean is we fill the transformer full of epoxy so none of the environmental stuff can get inside the transformer and make it short out. Well, when you get into some of the forming rooms in the glass process, that becomes extremely critical because mm -hmm. it's a pretty caustic environment that those things sit in. They're sitting in basically a, a jungle with chemicals floating around in the air. So we had to adapt. <laughs> yeah, we had to adapt to that environment a little bit, but those were more probably mechanical things of just making the device survive in its environment. The electrical was more of a hey, you know, just evolve up into the continuous applications. So I think I think that wasn't such a stretch for us. So it was more just making sure that it had the it had the duty to handle right running forever. Right. Yeah. yeah. You you had mentioned that when you start when Roman started, it kind of was was birthed out of this uh, this like little industry of welding transformers in West Michigan, different companies that made welding transformers. And one of the things you said is they, they were water-cooled. That was how this industry started way back a long time ago. Um, when, when you say water-cooled, I'm sure there's a lot of people that say, well, how does that work? Because water and electricity don't mix. And, and also I know a lot of people are very familiar with air-cooled transformers, which are just transformers that dissipate heat into the air. Um, do you want to shed a little light on, first of all, the, the whole concept of a water-cooled transformer, and then maybe how it how it's the same and how it's different um, from an air-cooled transformer? Yeah. So uh, I think it's, that's a good question, and I have been asked that many times when you mention water and electricity. The, the default is, oh, my God, that don't, that don't work. <laughs> and um, the, the reality of it is, is in a water-cooled transformer, specifically the way we made them and the way they had, had evolved, certainly by the time Roman was around, is the secondary side of the transformer produces a low-voltage high current. And in that quick comment is the answer, because basically, if you get the voltage low enough, the resistivity of the water is too high for any current to travel across it. So somebody turns around and says, well, if you have water in there, don't they just short out? Well, no, because we're welding with something less than 30 volts typically, and often less than 10 volts. So that's less voltage than a couple of D-cell batteries tied together that you would have in a flashlight, right? And you can't conduct electricity across that water with that low of voltage. So it's, a, it's an issue of voltage, and then there becomes a point where the voltage gets high enough where you can't directly water cool it anymore because the, the current will flow through the water, right? So that is, that is part of it. Also, the high voltage side of the transformer where the 440 comes in is isolated from the low voltage side of it. So the water never sees the 440 side. The water is only cooling the secondary, which is carrying the high current, 
all right? And we use water to do that. And what somebody turns around and says, well, why would you even go there? That, that makes the transformers very dense and very small and compact. And if you go all the way back to the welding industry, back then they were putting 50 transformers in a welding press that came down into a floor pan and welded all at once. So the spacing of the welding transformers became really critical. If you were to try to do that with air cool, the welding press would have been three times as big, right? So having those things really small is what drove it to a really a water-cooled application. And then once you got into the water cool, you had to have the science of, okay, how do we get the water in and out without affecting electricity? Oh, interesting. So then um, as technology has advanced over the last 100 years, uh, I, I know that there have been uh, developments on, on the control side of the transformers. So how you control what the transformer is actually putting out. I've, I've heard you say before, you know, tr the transformers are the dumb part of the system. Uh, power in, power out. Uh, do, do you want to just kind of get into a little bit, and I know, like, we're not a controls manufacturer, but they're so closely tied. Maybe just kind of get into a little bit of, like, the control technology that's coupled to transformers and how that's evolved as well. Yeah, so really, you know, back in the welding days, um, we were all sort of independent component manufacturers that ended up going into the welding process. And um, so you had a weld control, you had a weld transformer, you had a weld tool, and we sort of all played independently of one another. Um, today, as we sort of evolved, you start to become an integrated system where somebody doesn't separate the control from the transformer. But, but to your original question a little bit about you know, where the transformers came from, I happened to be at the very end of one of the technologies, which is when they were still using Ignitron tubes, which is a mercury-filled tube that got energized, and that's what turned the current on and off. That's a 1950s technology that ended someplace in the 80s. By then, they had already moved to an SCR, and an SCR gave you another level of control where you could you could digitally turn on and off you know, a device and, and control that heating time very accurately. And not long after that, um, certainly by the late 80s, early 90s, the IGBT started to come into the industry. And, and the real driving force between the IGBTs back then was we were, we were allowed to raise the frequency. And all of a sudden, 60 hertz no longer was a limit. And the 60 hertz also sets the size of the transformer. Mm -hmm. So when I was able to raise the frequency up to 1,000 hertz, I could dramatically switch shrink down the size of the transformer. And by doing that, I could now put it out to the end of a robot and I could have a robot whip this thing around in space because it got it small enough that the payload was light enough that the robot could handle it. So that was sort of the evolution of the IGBT through the welding industry is really driven by, hey, we're gonna go to robotic automation and you guys need to make these transformers light. And so that was, we said, we can make it light. You just got to raise the frequency up, right? And, that, and that's sort of how we evolved into IGBT and transformers, which, you know, Roman's been implementing that since the late 80s, right? So for us, that's sort of not a new thing. And I think I know where you're going to go next is now new industries are looking at that yeah. and saying, wow, that's neat technology. And, and, and again, we have now 25 years of history of that, you know, in, in behind us and the applications we've been working on. So uh, one one thing you said, I just got to ask. Um, historically, just the transformers that, that were using the, that stationary spot welding equipment were were AC, 60 hertz. Right. And so when you went to to 1,000 hertz. Right. Um, did, did that 1,000 hertz, does that do anything to the process side? So like... 
in in the case that you're talking about the weld. I mean, did a, does a thousand hertz make the weld dramatically different, yes. or did you have to figure that out? So what what really ends up happening is is again we're going to just dabble on uh, electrical engineering 101 here, but but um, the inductive reactants. Um, which is one of the uh, vectors that's going to impede the flow of current or stop your current, um, is, is directly um, related to the frequency. So when I went from 60 hertz to 1,000 hertz, that frequency would get too high for me to be able to pass the current out to the weld tool. So then we had to put a rectifier on the back of it and turn it into DC. Right now, I have DC. I have zero frequency, and I don't care about the secondary impedance or the secondary inductance anymore. So, along with the IGBT raising the frequency, it became a DC application. So, it's high frequency DC. There are unique applications where there's still high frequency AC. They're very rare and very specific to a, a sure. design tool, but the normal would be high frequency DC. Yeah, and I imagine those very rare AC high frequency applications are doing that because they figured out that that high frequency does something to improve the process Correct. or something like Correct. that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so that was in welding and, uh, have you, you know, how much have you seen on, on non welding applications going from, uh, I, 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 whatever that 1950s technology you talked about, it sounded like it needed to be in a DeLorean, uh, going back to the future. Um, and then SCRs and then IGBTs. Have you seen, um, a lot of adaption in, in that evolution on non-welding applications as well with the water cool transformers? I think, I think we are now, it, you know, when we looked into the heat treating business and even into some of the uh, other industrial heating processes, they were still very, what I would consider very old technology. They were using, you know, they were using SCRs and in some systems, you know, they're still using, um, electromechanical devices to be able to adjust the current and the voltage. Um, and today, obviously with a solid state with PLCs connected to them, you have, you have infinitely more control out of them. Yeah. So yeah, we've, we've now seen it come into those industries and now those industries are starting to look at that. There's some, you know, byproducts of that. We get some really positive things onto the primary, right? So there's going to be some electrical efficiency stuff that starts to show up. And in today's environment of electrification, electrical efficiency is starting to become a very hot topic across all sectors of the industries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, Roman has an understanding and has nicely positioned itself into the market of saying, hey, I did this in another industry 15 years ago. You guys are finally catching up and asking, hey, can we apply that? And in many instances, it's a very simple application. And we don't have to stretch very far to take the same thing we were doing in welding and use it in other industries. Probably the biggest resistance to that movement is just somebody's... Pun intended. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, the, it's just somebody's, you know, risk aversion, right? People have a process that they've used for 30 years and they don't want to change it. And, you know, as people start to come in and say, hey, look, at your power is a problem. You better start looking at other ways of doing that. We come back into the conversation again. Yeah, that's a great segue into my next question. So there are a lot of industries using um, resistance to for for whatever their processes or their application, and um, as as that whole electrification uh, initiative gets more and more momentum, obviously there's a lot more attention put on all of those systems being highly efficient because inefficient systems start to really have a negative impact on the overall grid. So have you seen in, in other industries besides welding, 
um, as as we've you've kind of grown into into those industries, um, challenges related to power. Yeah, so it's it's uh, that's sort of a, a real time question, and then it's a, and it's a today issue. Um, I think this electrification thing has came on pretty quick, and um, so you have established facilities with processes in them that somebody's now knocking on the door saying, "Hey, you got a power factor problem," or "Hey, you got a harmonics problem out under your system." Now you got a plant full of equipment that somebody has to look at and say, "What do we do to improve that?" So that, that's, that's one problem. The second thing that you have going on is huge industrial users of electricity are coming on board in their greenfield operations where they now have a chance to turn around and say, okay, we're going to put new equipment into this facility. And oh, by the way, the utility company is telling me I have to control some of these factors. What equipment can we put into that facility that will have an impact on power factor, that will have an impact on harmonics? And um, we have solutions for those things, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I often think the greenfield solution is an easier one than the retrofit solution, right? Because, because there's a cost to pulling equipment out and putting new equipment back in, and how does everything match up? So I think sort of going forward, it'll become a really, really important part of the discussion as you start to set up facilities and you tell the utility company, I'm going to be doing this in your backyard, and the utility company starts to put limits on what you can and can't do. Uh -huh. It's going to force some evolution into the what, how they use power and what that power looks like. Yeah, that was that's probably... Uh, one of my next questions was, um, what do you see utility companies doing to try to get ahead of this? Because um, they may not necessarily, although some are, but be the, one, the voices uh, leading the charge of electrification. But they certainly are greatly impacted by electrification initiatives. Uh, what do you see utility companies doing to try to kind of hedge off uh, having some major issues on their ground. Yeah, I, I, that, that's another great and interesting question because I, I think it's a today problem. So like you said, I think in some instances where you get maybe proactive utility companies is because somebody inside their organization experienced a win and they can then carry that on to the next facility and saying, hey, down the road when they did that, they implemented this. I think you guys ought to look at that too. Many of the utility companies, I don't think they understand what the industrial solutions are there, right? Places like Roman and other places haven't got the word out good enough yet that everybody says, oh, hey, there is a sort of a solution out there. Mm -hmm. So um, it, sometimes it comes a little bit after the fact, right? You have people well into the development of their, of their facility and, and, and launching product, and all of a sudden the utility company all of a sudden comes in late in the game and says, ooh, this is a little bit of a problem, <laughs> right? What, what are we going to do about this, right? And, and so I think that, I think you're right. I think it needs to be a discussion up front. I mean, there are bolt-on solutions that help things like power factor and harmonics. They're very expensive mm -hmm. right and somebody has to has to carry that cost and it won't be the utility company so the utility companies it seems to me that like a logical solution is if i can prevent the problem from happening at the process i don't need to add a bunch of costs by adding equipment out the backside of the uh, uh, you know of the bus and the power utility companies yeah sure so so kurt um you know we've talked about where transformers have come from up to today what do you see happening tomorrow in transformer technology? Um, I think probably one of the, you know, up and coming discussions, um, because I don't know that the solution has been solved, 
is you know we have a we have a couple issues. I think the electrical efficiency, I think the power factor, the harmonics is a big issue for many many industries. The other thing that you're starting to see is you know we 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 have a a place now where we're putting product into the data center world, and all of a sudden heat becomes a big problem because they're using all air cooled devices, and when you have a whole plant full of air cooled transformers that are spewing heat into a building, all of a sudden the HVAC system problem becomes a big problem problem, right? So I think that there are places out there that will start to evolve into water-cooled transformers for almost a different reason. It may not always be a size and weight problem. It may be more of how do I get rid of the heat mm -hmm. and maybe what can I do with that heat energy? So if I have a closed loop system, I'm pulling heat out of processes and I put that heat energy into a water pool, what can I do to use that heat energy? So now you start to get to real green solutions, right? Of, of you know, I'm going to generate heat, but that heat can be reused, right? Um, I, I even seen that in some other, you know, other industries where they took the air heat and reprocessed the air heat into, you know, into assisting the process as a boost or something. And, and that will continue to be a challenge for other industries. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So let's talk about Roman specifically. Uh, what do you see uh, Roman developing and getting into um, as, as a partner and kind of leader in, in bringing this high, high current power uh, to industries, but in the most efficient way possible? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, if you look back at Roman, you know, we were built on a foundation of understanding the process hopefully as well, if not better sometimes than our customers. So we're pretty steep with electrical engineers and application engineers and, you know, highly technical sales guys. So in that partnership, I think part of it, the first step is, you know, get all the players at the table, have an intelligent conversation, because we're all going to bring bits and pieces of an ultimate solution to that conversation. And, you know, so there, there's, there's the beginning of it is we just want a seat at the table. I believe we can contribute to many conversations. And sometimes when we get to the table a little bit late, I'm like, oh, I wish we were there earlier. We could have really helped you yeah. with that problem, right? And then, and then as you get more into the product, I think the other thing, you know, through this journey of our, you know, our 44 years of being in business is that, you know, we have a extremely skilled workforce now that, you know, we're very vertically integrated in building water-cooled transformers, which gets us a full engineering department. It, it has an evolved quality department. It has many skilled labors. And now as we get into systems, you know, we have, we have panel builders. So we become a real one-stop shop for power. And, and I think that gives us a lot of bandwidth to address a lot of industries and really become a partner in those industries and say, hey, look, we're going to partner up with you and we're going to become part of your solution because I'm not just a sheet metal guy. I'm not just a controls guy. I'm not just a house. We're sort of doing it all now. So we become a real, you know, a real, I think, key part of that integration of a solution mm -hmm. to a process. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I think that's proving itself out now because I can see what, you know, what customers are coming to the table and it becomes much more of a solution provider than just a component manufacturer. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and kind of giving us uh, some of the history of Roman some of the history of how transformers have evolved over the last hundred years. Um, and then also s sort of the, the, the history and hopefully future of, of how controls are also integrated into this, this whole industrial power world. Um, any, any last comments or points that you'd like to make? 
Well, I mean, again, in the spirit of the application engineer, which is in my DNA, um, the questions that you had referred to, saying if you have any questions, send them in. This conversation could evolve into a pretty unique conversation because like most of our trips that me and you are on, you really don't know what you're getting into until you get into it. Uh -huh. And then somebody asks the question, and that evolves into another conversation. So We might have to start a, uh, yeah, yeah. a, a column, <laughs> questions for Kurt. Yeah, it might be, it might be <laughs> podcast three, four, five, and six where we answer the questions. But, but no, I, I'm... Uh, I'm excited about where Roman is going. Uh, we've been on a really nice growth trajectory. I think we have a very talented team of people around here. And, um, you know, from, from my seat, I think there's still opportunities to, to teach, and we do a lot of that internally. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, like I said, I think the most important thing that, that hopefully we can, we can broadcast is, is the idea of getting us to the table early so that we at least have an opportunity to enter. We're not going to answer all the questions all the time, but the earlier we're at the table, the more we're thinking with the customer on what the ultimate solution is. And I think that's an advantage to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll encourage all of our listeners to follow our podcast. Also, follow us on LinkedIn and go to RomanMFG.com uh, where you'll find a lot of information on all the different industries that we serve and a lot of the products that we manufacture here at Roman Manufacturing. So with that, Kurt, again, thank you very much for joining me on, on the first uh, podcast. And uh, I appreciate your time. And uh, we'll look forward to the next podcast. <laughs>